chapter thirty of from bangkok to bombay siam french indochina burma hindustan by frank g carpenter this recording is in the public domain recording by betty b indian captains of industry i have just had a chat with one of the most progressive millionaires of all asia i refer to sir dorabji tata the head of the rich tata family and senior member of the bombay firm of tata sons limited the tatas own the taj mahal hotel the biggest in the far east and one of the most uncomfortable they hold the majority of stock in the largest cotton mills of india they have undertaken the greatest hydroelectric development in the country and they run an iron and steel works employing more than twenty five thousand men the tata family is to hindustan what the Mitsuis are to Japan, the Rothschilds to Europe, or the Morgans to the United States. They are millionaires who make their money breed like Australian rabbits, and Midases whose touch seems to turn all things to gold. Their ancestors were priests of Zoroaster and are supposed to have descended from the ancient kings of Persia. The Tatas were driven out of that country with the other Parsees, and in India, they drifted away from the priesthood and went into trade. At the time of our civil war, the great-grandfather of the present head of the family was a government contractor. In his day, he made and lost several fortunes and gave large sums to charity and the support of his religion. Jamsetji Nusserwanji Tata, the grandfather of the man with whom I talk today, came to Bombay as a boy and engaged in general trading. He made money and invested in some of India's first cotton mills, and later on established spinning and weaving plants that revolutionized cotton manufacturing in India. He built mills not only at Bombay, but in different parts of the interior, and handled them so well that the stockholders got a large return on their money every year, as well as stock dividends aggregating millions. From the earnings of one mill, he paid back in profits more than 13 times the original capital, and he founded other enterprises equally successful. This man became a multimillionaire, and when he died, he had interests in all parts of India, as well as in England and in China, Japan, and other countries of the Orient. The scheme for furnishing hydroelectric power to the cotton mills of Bombay originated with J. N. Tata, though it was put through by his son and grandsons. This development, which is constantly undergoing expansion, is in some respects one of the biggest water power undertakings of the world. Its success is due largely to the Western Ghats, hills that rise 2,000 feet above sea level within a short distance of the Arabian Sea. When the monsoon winds sweep inland from the ocean, the mountains force them to break into tremendous rains, while the tablelands behind the range form an ideal catchment area. At the suggestion of an Englishman, David Gosling, Mr. Tata got foreign experts to investigate the possibilities of a water power project. This they did for six long years, during which both Tata and Gosling died. But the Tata heirs continued with the plan formed a syndicate, and at last got the scheme under way. Now the rainfall stored in three lakes in the hills 
furnishes hydroelectric energy for lighting bombay and running her mills and streetcars the development was carried on largely by american engineers and the american formerly in charge is now a partner in the tata firm most important perhaps among all of the enterprises mentioned is the tata iron and steel company i learned something of it in my interview with sir dorab g tata in his bombay office the steel works are situated at jamshedpur about one hundred and fifty miles from calcutta and not far from beds of iron ore and coal the plant was built by an american engineering firm of new york and today some fifty of the most important executives are americans the tata company is one of the largest iron and steel corporations of asia and its future appears almost unlimited india now consumes something like seven hundred thousand tons of steel every year much of which is imported it annually buys about fifty million dollars worth of railway steel and rolling stock as well as machinery hardware and tools to the amount of more than a hundred ten million dollars the government requirements alone are enormous it operates eighty-seven large railway shops and arsenals and dockyards employing altogether more than one hundred thousand men all of these works feed on iron and steel in addition factories are now springing up in india and they all need machinery besides the cotton mills there are jute mills sugar mills and iron and brass foundries at present great britain furnishes about all the machinery and mill equipment most of the railway materials and the greater part of the iron and steel but it seems certain that india will ultimately do far more of her own iron and steel manufacturing thus providing employment for thousands of natives and increasing the wealth and prosperity of the country as it is now the tata plant which employs more than twenty five thousand men is the biggest single enterprise in all india and the only plant making steel but it cannot yet meet india's requirements in steel rails let alone supply the demand for other steel products in fact the combined output of the tata plant and all other indian ironworks can take care of only a part of the available market consequently there is plenty of room for expansion i asked sir dorab g tata to give me the history of the beginning of the enterprise at jamshedpur said he of course we investigated thoroughly before building the steelworks my father you know originated the idea he took it up some years ago with the hope of making this a great manufacturing nation after some study of england he concluded that her industrial strength came from the development of her iron and coal to find out whether india had similar resources he hired prospectors to go all over the peninsula they found at last certain deposits that he thought might be used for pig iron the available coal however was of a low grade and needed special treatment to fit it for coking he offered prizes for the invention of suitable processes and when they were developed he proposed to the government that it grant him concessions for starting the industry but he could get no satisfaction and was forced to drop the matter twenty years later he succeeded in interesting lord george hamilton then secretary of state for india lord george declared that the government 
would be glad to aid him in such an undertaking and so my father began his investigations anew spending a hundred thousand dollars or more upon them in the last years of his life we continued the work what did you find i asked much that no one imagined existed was the reply the geological survey had mentioned several iron deposits we reprospected the places designated until we had located deposits large enough for our purpose my father went himself to the united states where he engaged mining experts to come out and tell us whether it would pay to work the mines the first deposits we examined were not far from nagpur and upon our arrival at that place we went into the mineral museum as we looked at the specimens there one of our american mining engineers observed some fine ore labeled with the location of the deposit we sent to the place and discovered there two great hills of almost solid iron the ore was between sixty-five and seventy per cent pure superior to the best of your ores and the equal of almost any in the world we reported this to the government geologists who claimed there must be a mistake so they sent out their own investigators who stated that the iron was even better than we had represented at the same time continued mr tata we discovered deposits of good coking coal not far away as well as limestone and the other essentials for making steel and obtained concessions for the various deposits the results you know sir dorabji and a few other parsees tried to get british capital interested in their scheme but london's shekels were not forthcoming and finally the parsees turned to their own countrymen no such appeal for capital had ever been made in india before but the native princes and men of wealth responded at once with ample funds and from that day to this all the capital required by the company as it has expanded has come out of indian pockets the jamshedpur plant was opened for business just on the eve of the world war and furnished steel rails for the military railways not only in mesopotamia but in egypt palestine and east africa twelve years after the first stake was driven to the iron and steel town at jamshedpur its population numbered close to one hundred thousand the tatas are making a model industrial center of their city the planning of which was entrusted to an englishman another englishman serves as a kind of city manager but for the most part indians are employed where they can do the work there are only about two hundred positions in the plant held by british or americans who are needed as supervisors of the furnaces and rolling mills and in positions where special executive or mechanical abilities are required educated bengalis and madrasas many of them brahmins are chiefly engaged in clerical technical and managerial work moslems from the punjab pathans from the northwest border and sikhs are trained to do skilled manual labor the bulk of the unskilled workers are santals the sun-worshipping aboriginal inhabitants of the region who as a rule are industrious and cheerful though extremely ignorant and liable to violent outbursts of passion your works should succeed the better on account of the swadeshi movement i said to the parsi capitalist referring to the nationalist agitation 
for the use of made in india goods our products will be favored by the indians on that account was the reply our people will patronize home industries and swadeshi goods will undoubtedly be purchased in preference to imports from abroad of the same quality and price at one time the tatas seemed likely to have to meet stiff competition from the big han ya ping steelworks at hankow china but this company has not as good ore deposits as have the tatas and besides it got into difficulties it borrowed a good deal of money from japan which it had to be repaid by shipments of ore and pig iron to the japanese who in this way got control of the only big iron and steel works in china japan looks to india also for some of her imports of pig iron in a recent year we imported from india nearly twenty thousand tons of pig iron these imports have given rise to considerable speculation as to india's future as an exporter of iron to america she has inexhaustible supplies of cheap ore and plenty of manganese chromium and coal big native enterprises like those of the tatas are bringing into circulation some of india's vast stores of hoarded wealth this country has been called the sink of precious metals and the money graveyard of the world for twenty-five centuries gold and silver have been flowing into india to satisfy the craving of the people for tangible wealth to be stowed away in the earth hidden in princely treasure vaults or turned into bracelets anklets and other personal adornments there are cases where natives have died of famine rather than break into their hordes for the price of food records kept by the british for nearly a century show that more than fifteen hundred million dollars worth of gold has gone into india above what has come out again since columbus discovered america india has absorbed one-fourth of the world's silver production and years ago an economist estimated the wealth locked up in the golden trinkets and silver adornments of the people of india at two thousand million dollars just think what such sums would mean if turned over to industrial undertakings as for the capital frozen up in precious stones there seems no way even to guess at the amount i venture that a view of the treasures of the native princes would convince any one of the great size of the total among them are some of the world's most famous diamonds and one ruler has a carpet of pearls eight by ten feet in dimensions many years ago this was valued at five million dollars it is worth much more now i have heard that london bullion dealers carry an assortment of beautifully polished gold bars especially to satisfy the wants of the indian princes but now the indians are showing a tendency to put their money to work for them and their country rather than to keep it hidden away india appears to be at the beginning of a great industrial expansion the pioneer work in which has already been done by the tatas and other wealthy parsees end of chapter thirty